obviously, we are moving our family, a good chunk of it, this week. And I knew the moving project would be big. We've been in our house 17 years, and of course, the girls have all their stuff, but I had no idea what the process of getting them physically out of the house would would be like. Our house is a wreck. There are boxes everywhere. Um, I I don't know if it's organized confusion or just confusion, but we're going to start packing up a truck tomorrow to leave Wednesday morning. And one of the considerations as we've looked at packing is what goes in when. What goes in the front of the truck? What goes in the back of the truck? And, of course, it's influenced by this. When you get there... The stuff on the back of the moving van, that's what you take out first. So then the question becomes, when they get to their new home, what's the priority? What comes out of the moving van first? What's the first order of business when they get to their new home? And we've decided that the last thing that goes on the van, so it comes off first, are their beds and some kitchen stuff. So that Friday night, Lord willing, we're there. Uh, They'll be able to sleep in their own beds that night, and then Saturday morning we'll have some coffee at least, maybe some breakfast. But that's the priority. Our first priority sort of in the unloading is beds and kitchen. What's the first order of business when they get there? Ask yourself this. In your transitions in life, when you're going uprooting, going someplace new, maybe just starting a new job, Maybe relocating in relationships or school. It could be a number of things. What's your first order of business? What's your first priority when you arrive at that new destination or new relationships, new job, etc., whatever that might be? In the story we're in this morning in Genesis 12, Abram's first order of business is to worship and to proclaim. It's to worship and to proclaim. We'll be in Genesis 12, verses 6 through 9, but before we start into those verses, I want to mention a few things, I suppose, sort of disclaimers almost. One is, I know that I go through these texts pretty slow. You're in these big rambling stories, right? These narratives. You should be able to go through a lot of verses, and I'm going through two verses one week and three verses the the next. Some might say a slow, Jonathan, maybe even a tedious pace. Uh, but this is the deal. You know, if you teach, and, and if you've taught almost any venue, on an average week, I probably get about 10 hours of study in, maybe 12 if I'm doing well. So that what you hear on a Sunday morning, let's just say 30 minutes, that's the compressed study of 10 to 12 hours during my week. So you get just a little bit of what I've looked at, thought about, investigated, prayed over, etc., And the truth is, the more you look in these texts, the more you see is there. And there are these nuggets and these treasures that if you don't work through slowly enough, you just read over and you miss them. And so I get excited in the week as I'm working through these passages, and you have no idea how much I'm cutting out, how much I'm letting you off the hook, so to speak, because there's so much good stuff in here. One of the key things that I've realized this morning is, or related to this text is, we've got a story about an old man in the Middle East from about 3,000 years ago. And yet the more I look at the life of Abram and the promises God makes and the covenants God makes with Abram, the more I realize how directly connected to this guy 3,000 years ago I am. And you are. 
And we are as Christians, and, and this theme, Abram, faith, his call to faith, promises made to Abram, this comes up in spades in the New Testament. It's said over and over and over and over again. When it talks about Christians inheriting blessings and being heirs, it's generally referring to Abram and these texts. So when you read these stories in Genesis, these are literally, these are your stories. And Father Abram, you know this name we give Abram, the father of faith. Father Abraham really is much more directly connected to us than we typically think. And so it's okay to slow down enough to see some of the things God wants us to have out of these passages. It's probably impossible to overestimate uh, the value of these stories. Bringing up to speed, uh, to get up to verse 6 then, um, if you remember way back in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, God curses the families of the earth when they try to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, God promises to bless the families of the earth and give a name, a great name, to Abram as he leads him to a new country. Abram answers the call and he arrives in Canaan with his large extended household at the tender age of 75. That brings us up to the passage today. So Genesis 12, verses 6 through 9. It says, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord, it says in verse 7, your Bible probably has Lord in all caps. That means it's a transliteration of what's called the Tetragrammaton. In Hebrew, four letters that stand for the name of God, Yahweh. Sometimes I say Yahweh instead of Lord. By the way, for the Jews, this was significant because Yahweh was the name by which the Jewish nation knew God personally. When Moses says, who do I say sent me? God says, you tell them that I am sent you. And we take the letters from I am and we get Y-H-W-H in English and we pronounce Yahweh. But Yahweh to the Jews was God's personal name. So when we read Yahweh here, the first audience is hearing the name of their very personal God, the God they're in covenant with. So Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, to Yahweh who had appeared to him. He proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Negev just means the south, heading down towards Egypt. Uh, It's interesting, the three places, the three place names that we've got in these short verses, Shechem, Bethel, and Negev, or the south. Uh, Shechem, if you look at a map of Israel, Shechem's about halfway between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. Bethel is near the city of Ai, sort of near Jerusalem and the Jericho area, and in the south as well. The reason it's interesting, these three place names, is this. These come up later in the story in Genesis. So in Genesis 33 to 35, when Jacob comes back from Paddan Aram, the area near Haran where he'd gone and accumulated a couple of wives and a large entourage, when he comes back in those chapters in Genesis, these are the same three places Jacob comes to. And then when you read in the book of Joshua, when you see the the exodus Israelite nation coming with Joshua into the land of promise, guess, guess what three places they start with as well? Shechem, Bethel, and the south, the Negev. 
So imagine that you're the first audience that either reads or hears this story. You're coming into the land, and you realize you're going to the same places that Abram was at and that your father Jacob was at. What do you think that would do for your faith? You're remembering that God had promised Abram, this is the place your descendants are going to have. And these three place names are included. And then you'd remember the father, uh, your patriarch Jacob's story as well, that when Jacob came back in the land, he was in the same places. And so if you were in this first group, you realize your links in the chain of promise God had made to Abram hundreds of years before. And that just as God was with Abram, your direct father, and with Jacob, your father, your patriarch, he was going to be with you as well. And just as God had made those promises to Abram and to Jacob, ratified in Isaac and Jacob, you realize your heirs, your inheritors of those same promises. You're going to the same places. And God has told you through Moses that you're going to come in and inherit the land of promise. And you've had some troubles in the last 40 years along the way. And you know that you're going to be facing giants when you get into the land, that there's going to be enemies and opposition. You could use a little encouragement. And this first audience understood, I think, was intended by God to understand. They're going to the same place as Abram went. They're going to the same place as Jacob went. And just as God was with Abram and was with Jacob, they can count on God, Yahweh, to be with them as well. They're inheritors in this story of redemption. God made promises to Abram and his descendants. They're the descendants. God's going to keep those promises. There's this theme, I've mentioned this before, you know, when you look through the Old Testament, some of the passages people hate are actually very, very important. So if you read in Genesis, the genealogies, uh, we typically skip over them, right? So-and-so had so-and-so, so-and-so had so-and-so. You get to the Gospels, Matthew, it's the same thing, Luke's the same thing, genealogies. And why are those genealogies important? You know, God had made promises, and so every one of those guys' name, it was a link in the chain of God's story of redemption and promise, God keeping his word. And if you were a Jew back in the day that these stories were written, you understood that you were not some disconnected entity, like we tend to think of ourselves today, primarily in the West, that we sort of arrive on the scene where this autonomous individual, we're not connected to anyone or anything before us, we're not connected necessarily to anyone or anything after us. We sort of arrive in total like little demigods and we decide how things are. Well, if you were a Jew in these days, you had no, no concept like that. Matter of fact, in the history of the world, to be a disconnected entity was to be a slave. In fact, it was a thing to be abhorred, which is interesting that we've come to sort of deify the rugged individual who stands on his own. Through the history of the world, this is the only people who weren't connected to others were slaves, were chattel, property. But humans were connected to other humans, and therein lay your significance. Well, when you read these stories, the genealogies or the story about Abram, or if you were one of the early Jews hearing or reading this story, you got the idea that I'm not on my own, that I, my story is part of this large story that I'm connected to those who came before and I'll be connected to those who will come after me. I'm not a rugged individual on my own. 
I'm connected to people and promises that came before. I'm connected to people who will follow behind. And when I realize this, this, this is helpful. It's, it's humbling on one level because I realize the world's not all about me. That I have a role to play, and it's important for every one of us. It's important. But guys, it's all, it's a very short chapter in a very big story. God's the author. And the story doesn't begin at my birth and end at my death. It started a long time before me and you. And it'll keep going on after our bodies are ashes on the earth if the Lord doesn't come back first. But we are links in a chain, and our significance is in being connected and tied in. And Abram's story for us as Christians, that's our story as well in all kinds of ways. We'll talk about just a few here this morning. But we're tied in. We're not autonomous. We're links in a chain. We're part of the larger picture God is painting. When I think about this, I'm led to ask God, Lord, what is my part in your story? In my chapter, in this big narrative, what's my part? What's my role? What's your call on my life? And also this, I thank God that everything doesn't rest on my shoulders. If you tend to be a responsible person, you feel like, gosh, I've got to do it all. And you realize, no, I've, I've got a part. It's important. And it's connected. But it's not everything. God has other people and other roles and other parts. And so I can thank God. Lord, thanks for the part you've given me. And thanks that you've made me for the work and the role and the calling you've got in my life. And Lord, thanks that other people are part of that same process, that none of us are in it alone, that we're all part of this. I think one of the really, really important things that Christians have uh, failed at, uh, primarily Christian parents and the church in part, is giving our children and those we embrace, those who come to Christ and become part of the church, I think we fail to communicate to them the importance of seeing themselves as links in the chains and parts of the whole. Because therein, that is, that is our identity. It's who we're connected to, it's who we're from, and it's who we belong to. And to give others a sense of this is who you are, this is your family, this is your Calling, this is huge. This is huge. The Jews as a nation, they got this because everything about their life was, was affected by the covenant that they were in with God. They were God's people. They were in a covenant. They were supposed to do certain things and not do other things. But part of that meant that they understood the importance of translating to their children, to the generations that would follow them, the importance of knowing God and their link in that chain. So for instance, in Psalm 78 it says God commands they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God. And Psalm 78 simply recounts various adventures Israel had primarily as part of the Exodus. Tell them to your children and have your children tell those stories to their children to know who they belong to, to put their confidence in God. Not rugged individuals, links in the chain. Or Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And you see, if you see life this way, you're sort of like the Olympian in the torch race. You're carrying a torch and you pass it to someone else. And you're not the whole race. You don't do the whole race, but you carry the torch for part of that race, and you pass it on. 
When we read these stories, we get the picture. We're, we're in the same story. The story continues. There's only one story. It's a big story. And we have small roles in it. They're important roles. They're links in that chain of redemption, the story God's writing in the earth. We get to be a part of that. It's really important for us both to see our role in that and then to communicate to our children, those we have influence on, especially as Christians, what their role in that is as well. Not rugged individualists, not autonomous demigods, but links in the chain God has been forging all throughout history. Let me talk about a couple specifics in these verses. In verse 6, so you're a Jew in the Exodus coming into the land and you hear these stories. Verse 6 says that Abram goes to the oak of Moreh. Your your Bible might say the terebinth. It's a tree, the oak of Moreh. It's probably a big tree or it's a really old tree. There's something significant just in its physical stature or nature. The oak of Moray. Moray in Hebrew is teacher or instructor. So this is the tree of instruction. What do you think that meant to those first Jews? Abram goes to the tree of instruction. Was Abram going to the tree of instruction for instruction? I don't think so. The thought is probably this. The pagans that lived in the land use this tree as a shrine. And if you study ancient religions and cults and religious practices, high places, sometimes valleys, and trees were significant to pagan cultures and rites. And so we understand that this this tree that was unique perhaps by age or shape or whatever had become a shrine for the pagans in the land when Abram gets there. So we get it as we're coming into the land that the land our father Abram came into, it was a place of pagan religion and pagan practice. They were searching for help from gods other than Yahweh. It follows that quickly to say the Canaanite was then in the land. Why why do they tell the Canaanites in the land? Again, remember, if you're the first audience hearing this story, who are the Canaanites to you? The Canaanites are the enemy. Because God has told you in the covenant, when you go into the land, the people are already there. I'm going to dispossess them. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, God says to Abram later on here in Genesis, he says the the sin of the Amorites, part of the Canaanite clans, it's not yet full. So I'm not going to dispossess them yet. But in Leviticus 18, later when God gives the law to, to Israel, he says the wickedness of the Canaanites is so great that it is it as is as if the land itself is vomiting them out. They have so polluted the land by their morality, God says if the land could vomit, it would vomit them out. And they are so wicked that you can't have anything to do with them. Make no covenant with them. Don't marry their daughters. Don't take their daughters for your sons or vice versa. Have nothing to do with them. Why? Because if you bring them in, If you join with them, you're going to join their pagan practices and you're going to turn away from me. And of course, this does happen later. But the Jews coming into the land, they get the picture, and this is it. Abram has come to the land of promise. And that much is good. But there's opposition because there's people who worship other gods, not Yahweh. And those people in the land are 
Israel's enemy, the people they're called to dispossess when they come in with Joshua. So we understand Abram's there, but we know there's going to be challenges and difficulties to his possession of the land. In verse 7, it says that uh, God appears to Abram. If you remember back in verse 1, it said God spoke to Abram. Here in verse 7, it says God appeared to Abram. And just as in verse 1, what did it mean God spoke to Abram? Was it audible? Was it a voice from the sky? Was it a voice in his head? We said we don't know. And here he appears to Abram. And what did that look like? Was it fire in the bush? Did he look like an angel or a man? Uh, These are all appearances he takes on later. doesn't say we don't know. But we know he appeared to Abram, not, not for the last time either. Now, on one hand, if you read the New Testament, you know that in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and in 1 Timothy, it says no man has ever seen God. No man has ever seen God. And we understand that refers to God the Father. Because there are several what we call theophanies, or appearances of God on the earth that are not the incarnation. So you'll read in the Old Testament stories where it says God appeared to them. They saw God. They saw God face to face. And we understand that that was God the Son taking on some form temporarily and appearing and speaking and interacting with someone he wanted to communicate with. And that's exactly what we see here. The Lord appeared to Abram. Don't know exactly what it looked like, but it's significant. And when he appears to him, he says, To your descendants I will give this land. To your descendants I will give this land. That's all he says. To your descendants, I will give this land. Three reasons why this is important. The first is this. God had told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And so that implies a place, right? A geography, a neighborhood that's his. So if we go to the United States, we know on the map where that is. Or if we go to England, we know where that is. Where is Abram's nation? Well, God says you're in it. You've arrived. This land that you're on right now, this is the land I talked to you about. This is where you're going to become a great nation. He also says, though, the second point, he says this. He doesn't say here to Abram, I'm giving you the land. He says, I'm giving your descendants the land. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say, I'm giving it to you and your descendants? I'm giving it to your descendants. Shelby, how many descendants does Abram have when this is said? Do you know? He has zero descendants. He's 75 years old. He's an old man. His wife is an old woman and they have no children. So when God says to Abram, I'm giving this land to your descendants, what's he telling him? You're going to have kids. I'm going to give you children yet. So when he says it, he's not forgetting Abram. He's not minimizing Abram. He's telling Abram something Abram really wants to believe. I'm still going to have children. My hopes are not dead. God's going to give me Children. And that's why he says this. I'm giving the land to your descendants. The third reason is this, or excuse me, related to the second thing. Uh, when he says descendants, in the Hebrew, this word is zera, zera, And the equivalent in English would be seed. And the equivalent in Greek would be sperma. Seed. You know, in English, we can use seed in two ways, can't we? We can use seed singular. I am planting an apple seed to produce an apple tree. Or we can use seed 
plural, can't we? The farmer has seed to plant his crops. It can be used singularly or in plural. And in these Genesis accounts, you'll see this same word, Zara, used in the singular, and you'll see it used in the plural. And the reason I say this is this. It does have plural sense because Abram will have physical descendants who will occupy that land. But when you get to the New Testament and to Galatians 3, Paul reinterprets this passage in Genesis and the same promise in Genesis 22 to say that in the utmost or highest sense, the seed was meant to be singular because the seed was Christ. When Paul reads and looks back, and it all has to do with with are you connected to Abram? Are you in the household of faith? Who do you belong to? You, you new Christians. You maybe Jewish Christians. What's your connection? Paul says Christ, Jesus, was the heir to whom these promises came. Not just the physical descendants in the Old Testament period, but ultimately to Christ himself. Do you know what that means for you and me? This is sort of mind-blowing to me. This means that these promises are, are to you, and I mean very literally. Do you know why? Because the Scripture says that you and I are co-heirs with Christ. And what Christ inherits, we inherit. And I assume that this passage and the ones that follow it will be ultimately fulfilled when Jesus Christ reigns in Jerusalem with Israel in the land of promise and with you and I, Christians in the church, ruling and reigning with him over the promised millennial kingdom here on the earth. So when you read Genesis 12 in this promise, it ultimately, Paul says, refers to Christ. But if you're a Christian, that means it also refers directly to you. You're Christ's body. You're co-heirs with him. The church is his wife. What Christ has, we have. This is a very direct link for Christians to a very old Old Testament promise. The third point with this is this. This is the first of the land promises God makes to Abram. Um, In this passage, God just simply says, this is the land I'm giving your descendants. You read a little later, Genesis 13, God reiterates the promise. You get to Genesis 15, God makes a unilateral covenant. That means it has nothing to do with Abram fulfilling anything. God makes a unilateral covenant with Abram saying, I'm giving you this land. And then in Genesis 22, after Abram has started to offer Isaac on the altars God commanded him to, God makes an oath to Abraham that this land is his and his descendants. Who do you think the land in the Middle East belongs to? I think it belongs to Abraham's descendants. And of course, this has implications today. You know, a hundred years ago, there were people who had a theology that said the Jews will yet occupy the land of promise. And you know what they were generally laughed at? They were laughed at because people said, no way. For 2,000 years, from 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, kicked the Jews out, there was not a Jewish nation until 1948. Well, guess what? There's a Jewish nation. And they're back in the land. Now, The Jews are primarily uh, atheists, frankly, and it's still illegal to proselytize in Israel. But the scripture said and prophesied that the Jews would return in unbelief, and that's, that's what they are today. 
But guys, it's, uh, if you read the Bible, uh, let's see, two promises, a unilateral covenant and an oath by God saying to you and your descendants, I give this land. I think I know who the land belongs to. We'll talk later about these implications. But for now, make sure, God makes sure, Abram knows you've arrived. This is the place you're going to have kids. You're there. Lastly, verse 7 and 8, and the, the, the emphasis I'd like to leave you with this morning. Verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Verse 8, he built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, and called upon the name of the Lord. When Abram arrives in the land of promise, what's his first order of business? What's his first priority? He worships and he proclaims. He worships and he proclaims. Now, this doesn't actually say... It doesn't say he worshiped, does it? It says he built an altar in both cases. He built an altar. I wonder why. Why doesn't it just say he sacrificed? Or why doesn't it say he worshiped and sacrificed? Why does it say Abram built an altar both times? And you'll see this again later in Jacob's story, in Israel's story. I think the thought is this. Remember Abram's descendants coming into the land. It's a land filled with idolatry everywhere they went. If Abram built an altar, it meant he wasn't having anything to do with the religious rites and pagan practices that were already part of the land. And they were everywhere. Abram was worshiping God the way God wanted to be worshipped. He wasn't practicing what's called syncretism, mixing the worship of Yahweh with other pagan rites. Abram built an altar because he wasn't joining the worship of Yahweh with any other pagan practice. God appears to him and speaks, and the first thing that's recorded that Abram does in the land of promise is he builds an altar, he worships God, God's way. Doesn't mix it up with anything else. Builds an altar and worships two times here. Abram was a man of worship. And the first thing in the land of promise is worship. This is interesting too. Just as we said those place names, Shechem, Bethel, and the south, were the three place names for Abram, for Jacob, and for Israel, they visited. They're also the three places that we're told Abram and Jacob and Israel built altars and worshipped. There's this continuity of faith. And there's this continuity or there's this connection in each generation, building altars not joining in pagan religions, worshiping Yahweh as Yahweh meant, was meant to be worshipped, not mixing it up, not confounding it with anything else, not joining something else to the worship of Yahweh, worshiping God on His terms. And as he worshiped, it says, he called on the name of the Lord. If you remember way back in Genesis 4, verse 26, there it said, to Seth also a son was born He called his name Enosh, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Same phrase, and probably the same thought. In one way, we might say, I called on the name of the Lord. I called out to God. Most commentators, though, believe this means they proclaimed God by name. So the picture is this. Abram gets to the new land. He builds altars, and he worships Yahweh, his vertical relationship. And then he proclaims Yahweh horizontally to the nations and to the peoples around him. He worships and and he practices what we would say today, 
evangelism. So Abram, in very simple ways, was doing exactly what you and I as Christians in the church are called to today. Worship and proclaim. Worship God and practice, if you will, evangelism, proclaiming the name Jesus Christ today, not Yahweh. We don't identify God as Yahweh, but the Lord Jesus Christ today in evangelism. Abram would have made a great Christian. I think Abram probably shames most of us as Christians in his priorities of worship and proclamation. And he was so excited, if you will, about God and his promises and his interaction with him that he made sure he was telling everyone around him about God and about Yahweh. Think of this too. Abe is worshiping in the fields or on the hillsides. He wasn't going to a temple. He wasn't going to church. I don't say he's not going to church to say don't go to church. But the point is this. He worshipped where he was. Whether anyone else was around to see, Abram was worshipping. He didn't worship to impress anyone, is what I'm getting at. His worship was given to God for God's sake. Now, there were people around him. He was the head of a, of a big group. So it did mean that when he worshipped, his, his attendants and those, all those people with him, all his servants, they were witnessing him worship as well. And he wasn't, he wasn't embarrassed about worshiping or proclaiming the name of God to those around him. wasn't ashamed of that. I was reading in Mark's gospel in my quiet times the last few weeks, and Jesus said, I believe in Mark 8, <clears throat> that if you were embarrassed of him in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man would be ashamed of you when he came in his glory. I'm thinking, wow. And, and Peter heard those words. And what does Peter do? Peter denies before an adulterous and sinful world that he knows Jesus by name. You remember? The night of the, the Last Supper. And as I was reading that this morning, it struck me that for Peter, it wasn't just shame and embarrassment. I think he remembered Jesus' words. If you're ashamed of me in this wicked, adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory. In other words, how dare you be ashamed of me? And Peter uses the same language in Acts when he tells the early Jews to be saved from this sinful generation. We normally are embarrassed about being Christians, guys, about using the name of Jesus, about proclaiming Christ to the adulterous, sinful generation around us. We've got it backwards. Abram was telling the adulterous, sinful generation of his day about Yahweh, the true God. He was doing it in the open. He was doing it for God's benefit, but then he was proclaiming Yahweh to those around him. He wasn't embarrassed about belonging to this unknown God, this Rube from the east who came in and settled, frankly, among more sophisticated, superior Canaanites. And I wonder, if you feel ashamed or embarrassed, we need to, we need to remember we should worship in the open for God and we should proclaim boldly. And if we're embarrassed about being Christians or using Christ's name, and I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm not talking about being annoyance to others. I'm talking about in all the ways we, we have opportunities to. One of the things I love to do when we eat out, we pray in Jesus' name before the meal. And I hope people hear us and see us. Because I want to be salt and light the same way Abram was. 
That's a little thing. You think of many others. Are we worshiping God? And are we proclaiming him to others? Abe was doing it, and we have the same call today. This has made me ask myself the question, is my life characterized by worship and proclamation? Are you and I building our altars? Are we worshiping? The New Testament building our altars, obviously, not what we're doing. We were in a Bible study years ago. I can't remember what we were studying. A guy says, maybe God would be honored if we built altars in our backyard and offered sacrifices. No. (laughs) Please don't. Go to Florida. Go to Haiti. They do that still. Don't do that. Uh, Jesus Christ is the once for all offering. There's no other offering to be made. Scriptures are absolutely clear on this. The single offering to be made, it's done. Forever. For sin, it's over. But we can build altars figuratively in other ways. And the New Testament calls us to. As Christians, so for instance, in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. We're supposed to see ourselves as the animal that's on the altar, offered entirely to God. We're to see ourselves, everything we are, everything we have, everything we say, everything we do, everything we think. We're supposed to see as an offering on an altar presented to God for His benefit, His glory. That's the call on our life. That's ultimately the call on our life. That we, entirely, in who and what we are, we are an offering to God. We are an act of worship, as it were. But also, there's other things. Philippians 4.18, the Philippians had sent Paul money when he was down and, and needed some. And so he says, What you sent was a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God. You see the same thing later in Hebrews 13, 15. Uh, Let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. That's what we say or what we sing. And don't neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When you and I send funds to Haiti and the gospel for Asia and to people in this church, God says those are acceptable sacrifices. That's the way we worship. We take some of our substance and we give it to others. We do good with others. We share and help others. God says those are sacrifices. Those are acts of worship. He also says in 1 Peter 2, 5, offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual, you remember in John 4, Jesus says the Father seeks those worshipers and they worship in spirit and in truth. We offer up spiritual sacrifices, spiritual acts of worship. We build spiritual altars, as it were. The church has a call very similar to Abram's. We're commanded to worship and to proclaim. So ask yourself this. Do those who know you know you as a worshiping, proclaiming person? Do those who know you know you as someone who worships the Lord Jesus Christ? and that you proclaim his name in all the ways that are appropriate. To our children, our friends and family, fellow students, those we work with, do they see in us an example like Abram's, worshiping and proclaiming? And when we arrive at a new home, 
or a new school or a new job or whatever that new arrival point is? Do we worship? Is that our first order of business? And do we proclaim? Lord, I'm thinking about the Lord's Supper that we'll offer uh, here in just a little bit. Uh, This testimony, Lord Jesus, to your love for us, your sacrifice on the cross for our benefit and to the glory of your Father. That one ultimate sacrifice that all of history, all of creation waited for. Lord Jesus, everything else we do, it's it's a pittance compared to the singular offering, singular act of worship you offered to your Father. Lord, help us to see ourselves as Abram did, as your servant, and then better than that, as your sons and your daughters, as co-heirs with Christ. Lord, help us to value your word because we see who you are and what you're like and what you mean for us and from us. Help us to emulate Abram, in his commitment to worship you, Lord, and to proclaim you by name to those around you. And Father, I pray we would see ourselves as those sacrifices consumed in the fire of your altar. Lord, prevent us from being ashamed of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to realize the riches and the honor we have in Christ and help us as acts of worship towards you and proclamation to others to make Christ known by name to those around us. Lord, we ask that in his name, to his honor and glory. Amen.